From the Atlantic to the Pacific, across the islands of the Caribbean, from mountain crest to mountain crest, from canyons to the clouds and into the cosmos, we're pumping wattage high and low, plus streaming worldwide on the internet and keeping you company tonight. It's the place to relax and hang out. I'm your host, Joshua P. Warren, and this is Speaking of Strange, giving you the latest and discussing the weirdest. We have assembled the finest team of reporters and the most intriguing guests and that's why we are your favorite hub in a wild world. So keep it tuned right here. Yes, you are listening to an historic edition of the program. That's because it's the Use the Force edition. Today is when my new book uh, has been officially released. It's called Use the Force, A Jedi's Guide to the Law of Attraction. Now, I want to make it clear, this is an instructional guide that's literally going to teach you step-by-step step how to use the Force. It's not just about uh, Star Wars stuff. In fact, I wrote this book so that even somebody who has never watched a Star Wars movie, someone who cares nothing at all about Star Wars, should still be able to read it and appreciate it as an instructional guide on the Law of Attraction. But... We do want to dig a little bit deep this hour into the mythology behind the Force as it is uh, known within the Star Wars world. Let me begin by reading you a short passage from the new book, Use the Force. Um, a Jedi is, simply enough, an expert in use of the Force. George Lucas was a fan of Japanese movies showcasing the Edo period from 1603 to 1868. In these films, samurai, farmers, and craftsmen are embroiled in epic sagas and adventures. These are period dramas, and the Japanese word for period drama is jidageki. While in Asia, Lucas became familiar with the term and was inspired to call his fictional warriors Jedi. Now, the Jedi are a type of knight, and uh, that's why it's especially fitting that we have a real knight in the studio with us tonight. Uh, he has been on this program a number of times. He's been a friend for many years. Uh, he does a lot of what you experience when you take one of the Haunted Asheville ghost tours because he is the chief occult researcher for Haunted Asheville. And uh, he is a member, a real member, of the Knights Templar. So he is Sir Knight Tad McDivitt. Um, Tad, tell everybody a little bit about your background and the perspective that you take on all of this. Uh, you mean specifically the Jedi? Well, a little bit about, you know, how you got into, uh, I guess, the, the fiction of mythology in general yeah. and well, then how it leads in. It kind of, there were a bunch of things that clicked. I mean, obviously... Being a child of the 70s, raised on Star Wars, raised on uh, Harry Hansen, uh, uh, the claymation stuff, you know, get to see Perseus and Clash of the Titans, you know. So being a child of that era, I was always raised on these bigger-than-life ideas. And I think it all clicked for me uh, sometime, I don't know, around 12 years old. Two things happened. First off, I discover fantasy gaming. Mm -hmm. uh, and also about the same time, I... Uh, start taking Latin classes in seventh grade. And I make this realization. I'm like, oh, my gosh, 
you know, not only is it all on Clash of the Titans, but it all, you know, Medusa and the Minotaur are in this game too. And oh, look, it's the main subject of my Latin curriculum while we're translating. Mm -hmm. And that's when the light bulb went off over my head. And I realized that all of fiction is inspired by something. Yeah. And that, you know, all of these ideas and all of these, you know, Lord of the Rings is very based on Viking and Celtic culture. You know, Clash of the Titans totally comes from Greek and Roman culture. And I start this kind of passion that not only do I love the fictional genres themselves, be they science fiction, fantasy, or fusions like superhero comics, but I'm also a big student of where the inspiration comes from, what real-life situation or chain of, chain of events is this fictional story allegorical to. Mm -hmm. And I honestly think, especially with the story of the Jedi, it's very parallel um, to the fall of the Knights Templar on Friday the 13th in 1307. Um, especially when you kind of look at uh, the idea of this nefarious political figure who turns on an order of knights of the people and does it through very manipulative Machiavellian kind of ends. And I think there's definitely some parallels between, you know, uh, Yoda and Demole. And there are also parallels between Palpatine and uh, Francis the Fair, the, the king of France at the time. And, uh, and and I think it also kind of forwards that around the same time that we have the Star Wars stories, we also have the Indiana Jones stories. And let's face it, the Knights Templar themes are heavy-handed in that particular story. So I, I honestly think that Lucas himself is kind of a fan of that particular area of, of time, the, the, the screwy politics. Um, it was a time of tyrants and despots, you know, democracy hadn't existed since Rome, you know, and, and I think he definitely pulls a lot of inspiration because, well, when you look at human society, that was one of those pivotal epic struggle moments in the course of, you know, humankind. And I think he probably pulled a whole lot of inspiration because there are so many parallels of that little piece of history and, and, and all these themes that are going to pop up in all the movies he did in the 80s, except perhaps Howard. <laughs> oh, yeah, good point. <laughs> well, you know, the first time that the Force is explained uh, on screen, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi says in the uh, first Star Wars movie, which was actually episode four, he says, quote, the Force is what gives a Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. Uh, how would you describe the Force, Ted? Well, that particular passage really reminds me of Sheldrake's morphogenetic theory, field theory, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm kind of a big fan of. I can see our producer nodding, going, "It's like, oh yeah, that's a really Definitely. obscure one." <laughs> <laughs> totally. Which, interestingly enough, uh, Grant Morrison writing Animal Man comic books is what first turned me on to Sheldrake. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and. It's kind of funny, you know, because describing it like that, there are so many ancient cultures that hint around that undertone. I mean, that's a very, it's an apt way of describing Eastern mysticism mm -hmm. and chi. You know, you can also get into the concept of the Dharma, you know, the living force and what is fated to come. And, you know, and I think it kind of eclectically pulled from a lot of mystical belief systems of a lot of mystical cultures and said, hey, you know what? If I said it in space and aliens, I'm not offending anyone. 
<laughs> well, yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> you know, I'm a big fan of that, too, especially when I'm doing fiction. And that's what makes allegory wonderful, because you can look at a particular dark piece of history, rename it something, you know, uh, put it in a fictional context. And it's just like, oh, we have this story about a trade federation and greasy things. Well, that's obviously allegory to the greasy corporate corruption in our modern society. Mm hmm. You know, and and that's kind of the fun way of, you know, using the allegory of the story to call people out on things. And the smart person's going to connect the dots and go, oh, I know what this is really about. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it seems to me that um, the most significant thing that separates the Star Wars saga from other works of sci-fi and fantasy is the force? Yep. You know, it's it's that uh, that one element that a, a mystical idea in the middle of all this sci-fi. Yeah, it it, it it resonates with you on a um, on a spiritual level, and I don't want to veer off too far into Star Trek, but if you wanted to sort of compare the two, in, in Star Trek, it's sort of like uh, every all the the technology is is new and exciting, and they're just getting out and exploring everything. They, they're they're sort of like a, a type, maybe a type one or, or type two civilization or something like that. You know, they're working their way out. Right. By the time Star Wars takes place, which is set in this sort of timeless uh, setting, right. uh, all the the shiny nice things that the Star Trek guys were flying around are in, dinged up and used. They're junk now. You know, yeah. they're sitting around rusty yeah. in some parts lot somewhere. And it makes you uh, think, you know, if you were to try to contextualize all this on a timeline, you know, uh, are, does this represent cycles that, you know, different societies or different civilizations Almost are all certainly. going through? And, Most certainly. And, I, and, you know, you're looking at it from a, a certain timeline perspective. Have you ever uh, familiar with – this is, again, the, uh, the expand in canon. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a neat little niche in the plot that they call the Old Republic. Mm -hmm. and I don't know if you're familiar with any of the Old Republic content. It started as a video game. And then everyone loved the video game so much it became novels and comic books. And basically a bunch of writers are like, okay, we want to do Star Wars stuff. But Lucas has pinned down every iota of plot detail during this entire window of time. So the writers want creative flexibility. They're mm -hmm. like, we want to write new Star Wars stories, but we don't want to contradict. We don't want to retcon. We don't want to try and wiggle it into the story everyone already knows. So they came up with the idea. It was like, hey. What if we start writing Star Wars stories that happens oh, 5,000 years before Palpatine is born? Mm -hmm. And we analyze the beginning of the Sith and the old Jedi. And it's a fascinating window of time. And, and it kind of gave them this creative idea to, to start writing all these cool stories without worrying about it interfering with the stories we already know. So, yeah, there's even kind of like a, a stories about thousands of years before the stories we already know mm -hmm. um which started getting enough popularity they've started looping it in in fact i wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit of uh knights of the old republic references and the new stuff because it started to gain so much momentum um in what was it in i think it was in uh, revenge of the sith uh they explains that there was a character named darth bane who invented the rule of two where among the Sith there can only be a master and an apprentice. Well, the Knights of the Old Republic is during Darth Bane's era. Mm. And, oh man, Palpatine is a bug on the wall compared to the power of Darth Bane. You know how, uh, i tell you one of the things he does, uh, Palpatine needs a Jedi, needs a Death Star to blow up a planet. Darth Bane did it with just the Force. 
Wow. Like the way <laughs> Vader force chokes a person, mm-hmm. Darth Bane could do that to a planet. Just, just from orbit, focus. True godlike <laughs> power. Yeah, at, at one point in his devastating career rampaging the galaxy, he used the force to make a sun go supernova. Yeah, a, a true divinity. Yeah. True divinity. And uh, he makes an appearance later. In uh, the Clone Wars cartoon, or at least his spectral spirit does. Mm-hmm. And Another interesting thing for us to dig into, the ghostly aspect yeah. of the Force. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're, we're coming up on our, our first break this hour, though. And when we come back, uh, I also want to bring uh, Lauren into this conversation a little bit to give us uh, her perspective as somebody who also uh, grew up in that perfect demographic for Star Wars but looked at it more from the entertainment pop culture point of view. So she doesn't she doesn't have the same kind of angle on, on all this that, uh, say, you or I would, but her angle it might be even more familiar to the average person who's into Star Wars. We'll see. When we come back, hey, we're just kind of geeking out here. So if you're not into Star Wars, hopefully you'll, you can still appreciate how all this ties into real concepts throughout history, real historical figures, real ideas about mysticism and metaphysics and whatnot, because this is a special Use the Force edition of the show. My new book came out today officially. It's called Use the Force, a Jedi's Guide to the Law of Attraction. I'm Joshua P. Warren. Tonight's program is brought to you by Wright's Coin Shop, and you can find a link to Wright's if you go to speakingofstrange.com. We'll be right back. Big use the force edition of Speaking of Strange. Why is that? Well, today my new book officially came out, and it's called Use the Force, a Jedi's Guide to the Law of Attraction. And it really is a practical instructional manual that combines a lot of what I've been studying over the years and what I have learned about uh, other cultures and how they view the idea of some kind of energy field that binds everything together. You might think to yourself, well, why in the world am I the guy who should be writing about the Force? Well, you know, my whole life, whether I've been studying ghosts or UFOs or cryptids or psychic phenomena or interdimensional beings, what I've really been studying is the relationship between matter and energy and how that some of these things might be able to manifest 
that we don't, we don't understand. I mean, it, truly, things that uh, seem to appear in the ether that uh, we're exploring together. And so it, I would tell you that, really, Star Wars is an extremely paranormal franchise. It's got it all in there. It's got telekinesis. It's got telepathy. It has ghosts in there. Uh, we're going to dig into that a little bit more in a minute, but uh, this hour, you know, I have uh, Sir Knight Tad McDivitt in the studio. He's giving us his insight. And also, you know, my wife, Lauren, has uh, she's always been one of the biggest Star Wars fans that I've ever known. Uh, we have known each other almost 20 years, and uh, from the very beginning, she was telling me about her background uh, with Star Wars and really the impact that it made on your whole family. Tell us a little bit about your exposure and, and what Star Wars means to you and especially to you and your brother Charles. Uh, well, you know, uh, as everybody knows, the movie came out in 1977, in that uh, summer of 77. And uh, as young kids, my brother's about three years older than me. Uh, my parents, uh, they would hand us some money and take us to the movie theater and just let us stay there all day, watch whatever movies we wanted to. And uh, so that summer, my brother and I saw Star Wars, I think, t like 22 or 23 times. Uh, just watched it over and over and over. And, uh, you know, it, it really um, had a huge impact on my brother, especially. I mean, he was the big collector. I didn't ask for Star Wars toys because I would just play with his Star Wars toys. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, so, you know, he had the whole big collection. And, uh, you know, as a kid playing, that's what we played with. We played with the little droid maker set. And, you know, we oh, had I the, love that. Yeah, we had the, yeah, we had the Death Star set and the X-Wing fighter. My brother and I even, uh, you know, this was all... Mainly my brother Charles. He, uh, we had a little eight uh, millimeter camera, and uh, you know he we he did a whole stop motion animated movie with all of his action figures. You know, to the point like one of the scenes was Han Solo. We stuck him in a Tupperware cup with ice, and then <laughs> and then set him on the car. You know, this is summertime, and you know did the melting of the ice as he's coming out of the deep freeze. You know, so it was just. A huge part, I dressed up as Princess Leia, and my brother dressed up as uh, uh, Darth Vader. My mom made the costumes from from scratch. My brother's helmet, Darth Vader helmet, was fantastic. This is before they were mass-produced, so right. my mom was really good at this. Made me my little Princess Leia outfit, and Charles one year went as a Jawa. And so it was just something that was always part of our psyche growing up. And even now, my brother, who's in his 40s, uh, has a, a Christmas tree that he puts up every year that is solely dedicated to Star Wars from top to bottom. It has a Death Star for the star at the top, and it's just covered in Star Wars action figures and ornaments and everything. And so it's just a big part of uh, my psyche and the, and the life that I had growing up. It was Especially just, Christmas. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by the way, at some point, I do hope to have uh, your brother Charles on the program to ask him about, you know, just being a big Star Wars fan, you know, what the things are about Star Wars that attracted him and made him so excited and enthusiastic. And but tell us from a from a female perspective, what was it that made it so interesting to you? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I, obviously I was pretty young when the first uh, movie came out. I was, uh, I think I was like four years old or something like that, but I do remember it. Um, I guess it was just, um, 
you know, just like it is for everybody. It's just fun. You know, it was I didn't I wasn't scared of Darth Vader. I don't know why, you know, uh, but I I just enjoyed the storylines and the characters. And I had a humongous crush on Han Solo. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just um, it is the essence of nostalgia for me anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just uh, and our good friend uh, C. Eric Scott. Mm hmm. Big yep. Shot Scott, the filmmaker, yeah. he's another Star Wars mm-hmm. uh, fan. I mean, he, I remember, you know, when we, we first met him, he and his buddy Brett had just gone to, like, Star Wars Celebration mm-hmm. and, you know, really out there hanging out with the people who were dressing up role-playing. And mm-hmm. So, so Tad, um, let me ask you this now. Um, how would you, as a guy who has worked on comic books and uh, role-playing games and all that kind of thing, um, how would you characterize, you know, Star Wars and the fan base uh, compared to all these other, you know, we'll say similarly popular franchises? Right. Well, the funny thing is, is I, I don't think very few things can compete when you say similar, mm-hmm. you know. And one of the things that uh, uh, a lot of people don't know, um, what was that show we were talking about? Um, the one about the action figures that was on Netflix. Uh, it's called uh, Plastic Galaxy. Yes, and it tells a very interesting story about how even in uh, when it comes to copyright laws and likenesses and when it comes to how marketing is handled, uh, Star Wars changed the rules mm-hmm. for everything. I mean, before Star Wars, toys were an afterthought, you know, but after... Lucas's mountain of money, you know, everybody kind of realized, oh, the movie's a two-hour commercial for more and more and more plastic we're going to shovel. And and a lot of laws and a lot of, you know, little economic niches. Also keep in mind that in the 70s, when the first one is made, we're just coming out of uh, a window in popular culture where um, children live in a bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Frederick Wortham wrote a book called uh, The Seduction of the Innocent uh, in the 50s, kind of during in the middle of McCarthyism. And so throughout the 50s and 60s, there's a lot of legislation regarding what you can and cannot show children, what you can and cannot market to children. You know, um, they were just very afraid of comics and games and stuff like that being subversive and corrupting the youth in that very... Americana purist McCarthyism mindset. And then by the time the 70s come over, you know, the sexual revolution started, you know, those old values are starting to decay and everything was just the society was primed for this brand new model of marketing media. Um, You know, a lot of people don't realize. Remember when we were kids, we we collected zillions of Kenner uh, action figures. As children, we didn't realize that, no, Lucas owns Kenner. Mm-hmm. There's no middleman here. He's mm-hmm. making a mountain. That never happened before. You know, he's first time as a guy who's like, okay, I got his toy company where I meet demand, and then I make these movies where I manufacture demand. <laughs> and and no one had ever conceived it. You know, the idea of making it a s- several, you know, a, a decade-long project where, you know, he's strategizing, you know, characters and their action figures and how they're going to fit into the plot and what ship I'm going to sell are all intertwined into him designing the special effects and designing the plot. And nothing like that had ever happened before. You know, you got Flash Gordon. Yay. Everyone liked it. Everyone bought tickets to Flash Gordon. And then at the toy, you might buy a ray gun. 
and it wasn't this whole creature yet where even before the movies are made, they're sitting back going, hmm, what exotic pieces of plastic can I sell them this Christmas? <laughs> it was a perfect symbiotic relationship. It was. It was. And, and, and an interesting thing that happened shortly thereafterwards, um, at the time, there were very specific rules. A television show that is targeted to children, and by that I mean Saturday morning cartoons, you know, after-school cartoons, legally – they were not allowed to make toys supported by 30-minute cartoons in the 70s mm-hmm. because they were like, oh, we don't want to, you know, these 30-minute commercials. But it didn't apply to movies. Mm, I see. And so Lucas was able to, oh, I'm making movies, not television shows. And Lucas made so much money in the 70s that all those laws were rewritten. And in 1980, the copyright laws totally change. And you're allowed to make toys for 30-minute TV shows. And then the era of Transformers and G.I. Joe and Thundercats all explode. But it's all on the tail of the the Skywalker Ranch's fortune. Okay, we'll take another break. When we come back, we will talk about some of the more often controversial elements of the franchise. Uh, Some issues related to the Force Ghost. Or maybe what appear to be some self-contradictions within the movies. These are all areas where you have a lot to add to help people understand what happened and what's going on behind the scenes. Talking with Sir Knight Tad McDivitt about Use the Force. Well, that's the name of the, the new book. It's out now. I'm Joshua P. Warren. Speaking of Strange, we'll be right back. Oh, sharp music choice. There is no doubt that when you think of the experience of enjoying the Star Wars movies, a huge component is the score by John Williams. Uh, he is the genius behind all of this music. Not only the themes that we all remember so clearly and powerfully, but also just the atmosphere that was created around um, the substance that sort of tied the plot together. And... Uh, you know, that, that sets the tone for why people often reflect back so fondly upon their exposure to the franchise. Today, my new book came out. It's called Use the Force, 
A Jedi's Guide to the Law of Attraction. It's available in bookstores all over the country uh, and, and in some other countries as well. Uh, or you can go to Amazon.com and find it, or you can go directly to my personal website, JoshuaPWarren.com. And um, it is an instructional guide literally designed to teach you how to use the Force, how to be something like a Jedi yourself. And so uh, tonight on Speaking of Strange, I'm talking with, um, well, a lot of friends here in the studio, but one in particular, a man who knows a lot about Star Wars, Tad McDivitt. Uh, he is the chief occult researcher for Haunted Asheville, which, of course, are the tours that we run in downtown Asheville. If you're in town, it's a perfect time to take one, by the way. HauntedAsheville.com has got all the details. And there's one tour in particular that only Tad gives. Uh, it's called the Vampire and Occult Tour. And I tell people, if you really want to dig deep into some of these areas that Tad knows about, take the Vampire and Occult Tour in particular. But, uh, you know, when it comes to the paranormal in general, Star Wars is full of this ghostly element and this idea that when people die, they're not really gone forever, that they can still come back and guide you and communicate with you. And um, whenever a, a Jedi dies, there's the possibility that he will reappear as an apparition, and that's called a Force ghost. One thing that's kind of controversial, and there are actually a number of them related to this, at the end of Return of the Jedi, you see the Force ghosts there of Obi-Wan and, uh, and Yoda, and then you see Anakin, we'll say. Okay, I think originally they showed him as the old man yeah. who died, and there's, then later there's an edited version where they put Hayden Christensen. Later they in. put a lot of people didn't like that. Yeah, but uh, one of the biggest questions is why don't you see Qui Gon Jinn standing there? Didn't he attain the same kind of stature? You think he'd be there celebrating as well? Uh, yeah, I think that's probably one of those. Uh... They didn't really think about it. <laughs> they didn't know what they were going to make later. Yeah. You know, one of those, it's like, you know, it's like, well, we filmed that scene, and then 20 years later, we invent Qui-Gon Jinn. No. But Qui-Gon was supposed to be the first Jedi. Well, that's the thing, okay? that's I've read about people saying, well, the Force Ghost power wasn't exactly available yet for him or something right. like that. And, and, and they, they actually cover it at the very end of the Clone Wars cartoon series, mm -hmm. uh, which is interesting because that entire season was never actually aired on Cartoon Network. Mm -hmm. um, just kind of sat in a vault for a while till Netflix bought it, which is where people can view it now. Um, but there's this great little story where, you know, Yoda's sitting around and he starts hearing Qui-Gon's voice. And, of course, it's unprecedented. That's mm -hmm. dead. And he's like, am I going crazy? Well, you know, I'm the one who looks into the force for everybody. If I'm going crazy, we're all in trouble. And he goes on this kind of personal quest. He takes R2-D2 with him because, of course, R2-D2 must witness everything important. <laughs> Which actually is a, plays a very good uh, – that's a good point in what we're going to talk about in a minute. I think you know where I'm going with that. But, Lauren, you have some thoughts on this Force Ghost thing? Uh, well, I was just going to say maybe they didn't let uh, Qui-Gon Jinn come back because he was the one who produced Darth Vader. <laughs> oh, I like to point something Maybe out here. Maybe he's in purgatory somewhere or something. <laughs> Here's a, an interesting way of looking at it, and I don't get to express this very often, so I'm going to use the opportunity of being on the radio. Um, Anakin did bring balance to the Force uh, because originally it was two bad guys, hundreds of good guys. And when he was done, it was two good guys, two bad guys. He did bring balance. So he redeemed himself. Eh, kind of, sort of. It's just... Everyone was like, oh, balance to the force, balance to the force, without thinking about two bad guys mm -hmm. and 600-some-odd good guys. Balance does not mean yay good guy mm -hmm. in that particular scenario. 
Uh, and also, uh, you might find it interesting, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that thus far, out of all the Star Wars movies that have been produced, the only um, human that is seen, the only human character that is seen in every single one of the movies is Darth Vader, i.e. Anakin. Yeah. Is yeah. It, that's right, isn't it? Yep. He's, He's the, the only, only one. one. The only one. So, the, so really, Star Wars is about Anakin Skywalker. He is. He's the central character of the plot, mm-hmm. really. Yeah, and, and, and usually you have you know a different sense about movies, like, well, the good guy is going to be the main dude, the protagonist. But that's one of the other interesting things about how Star Wars was designed. I mean, yeah. you get well, to see the journey. And as it plays out, you know, the good guy and the bad guy are father and son and a complete reflection of each other. Yeah. Hence that very weird scene in Empire Strikes yep. Back when yep. Luke fights this vision of Darth Vader, and yep. when the face breaks off the mask, Luke sees himself inside there. Yep. So there's actually a section in the book about this. It's called the mirror effect. We won't get into it right now. But, you know, Ted, how intentionally do you think all these parallels were created? Do you think that Lucas and the other writers I were just kind of like... I do not think it was premeditated. So they I just kind of like were, subconsciously put yeah, the stuff part in? Part of it is subconsciously. Part of it they were borrowing from the other trends that were popular without even really, well, where did they get those ideas? Yeah. You know, because he was obviously a fan of Flash Gordon. He's obviously a fan of those, you know, old Japanese epics. And, you know, and those were inspired by history and those were, you know, and others were inspired by politics. And I think part of it is like, oh, I love this idea. I love this idea. I love this idea. And he might not be premeditatedly realizing it, but he's creating this eclectic sandwich of genres and and little flavoring pieces of all kinds. Because there's a little bit of a Shogun story in there. Mm -hmm. When you get to Han and Moss Eisley, that's a Western. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, there's all these little take all of the other genres that were really popular in the media and kind of throw them into a space environment and mix it all up. I would love to think that George Lucas will read this book as well as some of the other writers and say, holy crap, I didn't realize I was thinking this, but I guess I was. You know what I mean? But that kind of goes back to the law of attraction, you know, that, you know, people are occasionally just kind of vessels to get the message out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just how clearly did he even see what was happening? Okay, so let's move on to this next question, and we may not be able to uh, to dig fully into it before we hit a break, and that's okay. Um, uh, when it comes to again, what a lot of people might think of as a potential self contradiction within the movies, I've always found it interesting that when you look at the first six movies as a whole, well, R two D two and C three P O to some extent are involved in all three of the uh, like episodes one two and three yep as a matter of fact darth well anakin i.e darth vader creates c3po yeah. which a lot of people don't realize he made C-3PO. and then even after that he and his wife kind of switch droids because you know the protocol droid goes off with the senator mm-hmm. and the you know astrometric droid goes with the military pilot so yeah you know when when they get married they kind of switch helpers because the opposite helper is kind of useful so yeah he kind of gets to be wingman and everything important so r2d2 and c3po especially r2d2 especially r2d2 because c3po gets his memories erased well you know r2 he gets to to hang out with Mm obi-wan and uh and qui-gon and and everybody he gets to know everybody and then uh and they get to know him you know 
but then in the first Star Wars movie, Episode Four, A New Hope, um, when the old Obi Wan is introduced to quote unquote introduced yes. to R two D two and, and C three he says, "Funny, I don't seem to remember owning any droids." But here's the funny thing: Yoda did the same thing when R two and Luke land on Dagobah for the first time. You know, Yoda's totally, I don't know who you are. La, 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 la. Who is this, who is this robot? That robot was his co-pilot when the first time Yoda stepped foot on that planet 20 years ago. And I think that's what it is. It's that both Yoda and Anakin and Obi-Wan are lying to Luke because they're really nervous that he's going to follow the exact path of his father, which is kind of a big part of the theme too. Which, well, that makes sense because, uh, Later on, Luke Skywalker even sort of uh, scolds Obi Wan for for lying to him. Essentially, you know, yep. not not, not, not telling him that Darth Vader was his father. And then that's when Obi Wan says something like, "Well, the truth depends on your point of view," or something like that. You know, <laughs> which yeah. is a very odd thing for a guy to say who's supposed to be a fighter. I think, I think that's what it was. And both Obi Wan and Yoda were bold faced lying to him at first. And well, do you find it ironic? That, from that perspective, all throughout the saga, the good guys are lying constantly, and the bad guys are telling the truth. Oh, yeah. They're always telling oh, yeah. the truth. And you know what else I kind of think of? Think about the average Joe. Like, you know, look at the you know, 20, 25-year span of the entire thing from, you know, Jake Lloyd playing little Anakin on up to old, bald, messed up Anakin dying. That's, what, maybe 30-year window of plot? Think about the average guy. The entire time, some jerk with a lightsaber is telling you what to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it ain't the Jedi going, well, this is a Jedi matter, you have to go do this. Later on, it's the Emperor. So you kind of got to wonder about these like poor, random people that you know are kind of getting bossed around by force wielders all the damn time. We're going to take a break. When we come back. We will be in the final segment of this hour and this particular discussion. And uh, I definitely want us to talk about what a lot of people love more than anything else about Star Wars. It is called the most popular weapon in cinema history, the significance of the lightsaber yeah. and the relationship between the lightsaber and the Jedi. Uh, this is the Use the Force edition of tonight's program, and that's because my new book, Use the Force, A Jedi's Guide to the Law of Attraction, came out today. It's available everywhere. So far, the reviews have been five-star. People are loving this book, and I hope that you will read it and love it as well. The show is brought to you by Wright's Coin Shop. And speaking of strange, with Joshua P. Warren, we'll be right back.
Yeah, what a great scene it was when Yoda lifted the X-Wing from the Dagobah muck. That was a very, very powerful moment in the life of Luke Skywalker. This is Yoda's theme. And uh, we're actually in the final minutes of hour number two on tonight's very special edition of Speaking of Strange. Uh, by the way, next hour, well, we call it the Dark 30 Hour. And that's when we dig into some of the more outrageous and controversial news stories, not for the kiddies, not for the easily offended. So you can decide whether or not you want to stay around for that kind of is, content. Is that going to be Star Wars related, too? Well, yeah, we're going we're gonna to have Star Wars music playing, but uh, the stories are going to be the same old twisted, nasty, filthy so it's things. It's not going to be like somebody in Florida <laughs> desecrated a tauntaun. If, if I can find it, I will read it. Uh, but, yeah, the new book, Use the Force, A Jedi's Guide to the Law of Attraction, is out today. We are celebrating that here. We are so happy that you have chosen to spend this evening with us. The show tonight is brought to you by Wright's Coin Shop. The number to write is 828-298-5402. That's 828-298-5402. Talking right now with Tad McDivitt. You know, Tad, one interesting thing about the Jedi is that um, they have a lot of monk-like characteristics. Very much so. And yet they're very comfortable with technology. Yeah. They know how to fly spaceships. They Luddite, can repair they are them. not. They have, yeah, they're always hands-on. They're very smart, you know. They're working on mechanics and stuff. And many of them carry around this famous weapon, the lightsaber. Why is it that somebody who's proficient enough in using the Force to just, like, <laughs> choke a guy by clenching <laughs> right. his fist carries a big glowing sword around? Oh, well, I think there's probably multiple reasons to that. Uh, the first obvious one is if you're going to make a movie, well, you know, dueling <laughs> scenes are freaking awesome, as we saw. <laughs> You know, with Ray Park jumping around. Um, but also, it is symbolic. Mm -hmm. um, when you start getting into uh, uh, symbolism, uh, frequently in a lot of cultures, especially Western cultures, uh, the sword is a symbol for intellect and knowledge. And and I think that might have been part of it, too. You know, you got that, you know, samurai and his trusty sword kind of, you know, symbolic emblem of honor. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's there's a lot of, you know, thematic reasons mm -hmm. why they would be running around. Plus, you kind of got to think you watch all the fancy things they do with it. I mean, the deflecting the blasters and the, you know, using it as both a light and to melt through something. And, you know, it's a kind of practical tool on top of the rest of it. Um, if I handed you a real lightsaber would you play around with it, or would you be terrified? Um, oh, I would have to play with it. That, <laughs> I don't even have to think about that. I would also like have to exert a lot of willpower to not run off into the night being the only person on the planet <laughs> with a real lightsaber. Take that, cops. Because <laughs> I just figure, you know, I know if I had a lightsaber within five minutes, I'd cut something off, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah you totally. Know, you you know, probably shouldn't use it unless you have precognition. Precognition. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that's, that's how Jedi managed to not cut their finger off as they see the future and they go, can't. oh, I was about to cut my finger off. <laughs> Better not do that. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, we only have a couple minutes left here, so uh, I'm just going to you know, give you the floor here. Um, why don't you try to punctuate this and tell also everybody a little bit more about how they can learn about you and your work and keep up with you and the tours and stuff that you're doing. Oh, best way to do is to come on the tours. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of like uh, 
especially the Friday tour, which mm-hmm. is the Vampire and Occult tour, which is my favorite tour. You and I created it together. Um, a lot of the people that do, you know, know you and I well actually have said that's their favorite tour, uh, which fills me with a lot of awesome. Um, and that's probably the best way because not only do you get, you know, the tour, the, the slightly off the beaten path tour, but anyone who comes along it is is guaranteed a few minutes of pick Tad's brain. Oh, yeah. And you've made some great friendships on yeah. that tour. Yeah. As a matter of fact, just last night, I uh, took a wonderful couple on a ghost hunt there at the Masonic Temple. And, you know, both of them uh, very experienced in the more technical side of ghost hunting. But once I started breaking into, you know, Greek and Roman Orpheus cults and ancient necromancy, they were just kind of like, wow, I never looked at it that way. And I kind of did my signature attempting to blow the minds of our patrons when they come on one of my tours. And uh, again, that's hauntedashville.com that has all that information. And, uh, you know, if you ever want to contact Tad, I believe your contact info is on that page it sure somewhere. Is. Okay. Sure is. Uh, hauntedashville.com. And, uh, yeah, he, he usually is uh, doing the ghost hunts, the vampire and occult tour. You do the ghost tours on yep. Saturdays and Sundays. Yep, yep. And and you also can customize things for people. I can. Yeah. You know, especially if I have enough times warning and, you know, and I know for sure that, like, especially when we do ghost hunts and stuff, I got to make sure the temple's free. But yeah. well, we're always you, open. We call this the show that explores the summit of mankind's enlightenment and the pit of his depravity. Depravity. So thank you so much for playing the key role here and helping us explore the summit of some great thought-provoking things. But now you're sticking around. For the <laughs> <Thankfully>. dark side. <laughs> We're going deep into the pit next, my friends. Uh, it will be the dark 30 hour. If that sounds like something you want to hear, well, just stay right here. Uh, I am Joshua P. Warren. Tonight is a special Use the Force edition of Speaking of Strange.